Good morning, everybody. Good to be here. We're having baptisms uh, at the end of the service today, so it's exciting. I just want to welcome everyone who came here to uh, witness your relatives or your friends um, getting baptized. It's good to have you here. We are we're a little church here in Highland, and uh, we love the Lord Jesus with all of our hearts. And so we love to look at God's Word together and dig into what He has to say for us. We're currently in a series on vocation. And a lot of times we say vocation, we think just work. But God has got a calling for us in many different spheres of life. And today we're going to look at your calling in the church. So this is our last part. This is a part five. This is the last uh, message on vocation. If you want to turn with me to Romans 8. We're looking at this passage. I'm going to pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you this morning for the privilege of singing your praises. Thank you for the, just the privilege we have to gather together in your name. Look at your word together. And Lord, we ask this morning that you would give us um, hearts that are soft and ready to receive your word. We ask that you'd remove distractions and help us to, to not only hear your word, but be doers of your word. God, thank you that you've got a calling on each one of our lives and you've put us into certain places and you've given us the church your body. Lord, help us to live these things out. In Jesus' name, amen. Three pastors got together for coffee one day and all found that their churches had bat infestation problems. I got so mad, said one, I took a shotgun and fired at them. It made holes in the ceiling but did nothing to the bats. I tried trapping them alive, said the second, then I drove 50 miles before releasing them, but they beat me back to the church. I haven't had any problems, said the third. Well, what did you do, asked the others, amazed. I simply baptized and confirmed them, he replied. I haven't seen them since. As we begin to talk about church and look at what church is meant to be and the way God calls us into church, undoubtedly, in, a, in, a, in as many people as we have sitting here today, there's going to be all different kinds of experiences. Some experiences at church have been great for some people, and other people have been really, really terribly hurt by the church. And so as we begin to talk about this, the temptation would be to kind of backload all of your thoughts on church by what you've experienced in the past. And what I'm going to ask you to do today is to look at church from the eyes of, of the Bible and say, God, what do you have for church? How do you want church to operate? How is it that you've designed church, and why do we even have church in the first place? And so as we come into this, I, I don't want you to come in with all kinds of, of weird notions or, or anything like that of what church should be. But let's allow the Word of God to shape our understanding of what church should be. So, looking at this, I, just, I was thinking, why do we do church? I mean, why do we gather, why do Christians across America and the world gather together at different days and different places, and here in America, it's Sunday morning? Why do we do this? Who came up with the idea of church? I mean, who came up with the idea that, hey, we're going to sing some songs, we're going to look at God's Word, and then we're going to um, 
talk about what's going on in the church and why do we do these things anyways? And why do we make such a big deal about church? Why is church such a big deal? Why is it, why is it that Christians get so excited about church and talk about church and revolve their lives around church? Well, as we look into our vocation, and that's, vocation is a calling into something. We see that God calls us into a workplace. God allows the, each one of us a certain calling. And so there may be um, a farmer who is called to, to raise crops, to provide food for people. We also have our calling as citizens to a particular country. We're called to be here in America. We're called to better our, our communities and get involved in politics and vote and pay taxes and pray for those in authority over us. We're also called to a family. God calls each one of us into a family and the way he cares for us, the way that he loves us through our family. And now we look at the church. And so often, like I said before, we've got all these ideas of church. We, we see on TV pastors who are asking for your money constantly or pastors with fidelity issues, churches closing their doors because no one's showing up anymore. And we may think at first glance that the church is just kind of this thing that Christians do to kind of make themselves feel better on a Sunday morning. But yet, Christ is present in the church. Christ is in our midst, just like he's promised to be. In the preaching of the word, in the sacraments, with his people. And it's not just a building. As we talk about church, it's not just a location a structure that we have on the street or down the street. Church is God's body of believers together, coming together for a purpose. That's the church. Church is not this building. The church is not this location. We are the church. We are the body. So how does that all work? We're going to look at how this whole thing works, okay? But to understand how church works, we need to understand who we are, who what our calling is. And so the calling to be a church is preceded by another call, and that's a call of faith. We're going to look at that in Romans 8. Romans 8, if you want to turn there with me to verses 28 through 30. This is what we read in Romans 8, 28 and 30. And we know that though for those who God, who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now we could spend the next probably year preaching on this passage of scripture, but... Here's what I want you to know, that God is the one who calls. God is the one calling. He is calling us to faith. He's calling us to something. God is the one who is calling out. Now, how does he call out? What, what means does he call out? If you want to turn with me to 2 Thessalonians, we're going to skip around a little bit here because I want us to get a, this big picture of what God's doing. 2 Thessalonians. 2, 13, and 14, the, the verses should be up on the screen. 
This is how God calls us to faith, okay? So God is calling. He's calling us through something. Second Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14 reads this. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by God, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through the gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how does God call? God gives this call through the gospel message. It's this message that Jesus Christ died for sins. And not just sins in some vague sense out there, but Christ died for my sins. Christ died for your sins. This message of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection that we sang about all morning, this is the gospel message that God uses to bring people to faith. And it's through that message. Now, it's God's word, but look what 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 reads this. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And this is what, when we talk about the gospel message, we could think, well, it's just some guy telling us some stuff about the Lord. But actually what God's word says is when we begin to proclaim the gospel message, proclaim the word of God to people, it's as if almighty God is speaking through his word to you and to me. God is at work through his word. God is speaking to us through his word. It's not just man's word. When we open this Bible, this is God's very word to us. The good news is for us that God's word is at work. You don't have to turn there, but Hebrews 4.12 says this, God's word is living and active. This book is not just some textbook. It's not just some good novel. It doesn't have just a collection of good stories. This is God's almighty, almighty word that he has promised is living and active. There's no other book in the world that is living and active. There's no other book in the world that God has said, I'm going to cause my spirit to bring these words to life. When we proclaim these words, you are proclaiming the very words of God. And it produces something. It calls people to faith. Calls them to trust in Jesus. The good news is that God's word is living and active, but it also always accomplishes something. Isaiah 55, 11 says, God's word is accomplishing something. I want to read that for you real quick. Isaiah 55, 11. And this is what we read in Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is God's promise to us. His word never returns empty. It never returns void. It has purpose. 
It accomplishes something. So what does God's word accomplish in us as it calls us to faith? Well, in the word of God, we see a number of things. We see, number one, we see a law. We see a law that God presents to us, and he says, if you would be right with me, if you want to enter into relationship with me, you've got to obey these laws, these rules. Because I am a perfect God, because I am holy, because I am righteous, therefore you need to be holy and righteous as well. And here's how. Follow these rules. We think about the Ten Commandments. We measure ourselves up to these rules that God's given us. So God's, one of the Ten Commandments, don't lie. We have all lied. Every one of us has has lied. If you say you have not lied, you are a liar. You implicate yourself. But not only that, we also see don't steal. We've all taken things, either from work, from a store, from a friend's house. We've taken things. We're thieves. Not only that, but we also see God say, do not use my name in vain. That means don't use my name in any unholy way. We've laughed at jokes with God's name in it. We've seen movies that does not honor God's name and we've been fine with it. We've said God's name in a way that is not honoring to God. You know what that makes us? It makes us blasphemers. There's a very serious charge that God puts. As we joke around, as we talk about God, he says, don't do it in a way that's dishonoring to God. It makes you a blasphemer. Those are just three of the ten. We've failed all of the Ten Commandments some way in our lives. You know what that does? It shows us our failure. And what it does, it brings condemnation to us. Because we realize, to get right with God, how are we ever going to do this? How much, how much good would I have to do in order to outweigh my blasphemy? How much good would I have to do to make up for one use of God's name that is not honoring to him? It brings condemnation. We realize, I don't measure up. I'm never going to make it. There's no way for me. But God's word also shows us this. Shows us the gospel. It's the good news. This is why it is good news. Because we don't measure up. Because we can't make it on our own. Because we can't do enough good in order for us to be made right with God. So what God did is he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life in our place and die on the cross for our sins, our disobedience, our failure. Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Not only that, but we see in 1 Corinthians 1.9 that God calls us. God calls us. God is calling you into fellowship with himself. He's calling you into relationship. And then we see that this call, this power of God, is a gift to us. Ephesians 2.8 and 9. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 reads this. For by grace you have been saved, this grace, this gift of God, this, this love and mercy that we did not earn or deserve. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And I think so often for myself or even the church, we think, well, if I do enough good, God will be happy with me. He'll accept me as long as I do enough good, as long as my good outweighs my bad. As long as I make up for that stuff I did last night or I did this morning or that word I said or that thing I looked at or as long as I do enough good, I'll be right with God. But as we look at these Ten Commandments that God's given us, how we failed over and over and over again. 
we understand that we can't make up for it. What are we going to do to make up for blaspheming? How much good would we have to do? And he says, you can't do enough. And that's why I've given you a gift. If you had to work for this salvation, if you had to do enough good for this salvation, it's no longer a gift. It's simply a payment. If I gave you a car and you said, you know what? Let me give you $4,000 for this car. I said, okay, that's great. Thanks. It's no longer a gift. You bought it. You paid for it. It's a payment for something. And God says, look, with salvation, it is a gift of God. And it comes by faith. Believing that Jesus Christ has died for our sins. All these ways in which we fail to measure up, he paid the price for those sins. He's given us a gift of salvation. That's God's grace. That's what we see in God's word. So Christians are not those who just attend church, just do some good religious things. They're the people who have heard this gospel message, this good news of Jesus Christ, and have believed in their hearts and have trusted that Jesus Christ has cleansed them and forgiven them of all their sins. Now, that all precedes the call to our, our unity as a church. So I want us to turn to 1 Peter 2, 9. This is where we see God not just calling us individually to himself, although he does do that, calls us corporately. This is what we read in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is what God does. God calls us to faith, calls us into fellowship with himself, calls us to forgiveness of our sins and a unity with him. But then he calls us together as God's people. God is calling us together as one. I love this, a holy nation, a people of God. We are called to declare the praises of the caller. In the New Testament, in the Greek that was originally written in, there isn't a word necessarily that means church as the way we think of it. There's a Greek word that is ecclesia, which simply means the called out ones. As we read church in the, in the Bible, it's this word ecclesia. It just means the called out ones. It's the called out ones, those who have been called by God to something. We've been called to a body of believers. And this holy nation describes our identity and our unity as believers. And this is why as a, as a believer, you can go anywhere in the world and as you begin to talk with people, there's this instant bond of fellowship that you have with other believers. I was at Lincoln Center this week. I was at my daughter. She's in gymnastics. I was dropping her off and you have to stay there. And I was talking to the guy next to me. Find out he goes to Suburban Bible Church. He's a godly man, loves the Lord. And there's this immediate bond that we have in Christ. We're going to talk about family and life and, and about church. And it's like God is bringing his people together. And it's his bond that we have in Christ. <clears throat> Yet we can read about the church. We can hear about the church. And it can be so unimpressive at times, can it? We've all been to church. We're like, oh, man, it was just a dud. What's going on? Didn't make any sense. The worship was off. The announcements are weird. They keep asking for my money. 
baptismal doesn't work. It's freezing cold water. Like, what's the deal with this church thing? This, this glorious picture of God redeeming people, calling people to faith, calling people as a holy, as a holy people, as a, as a priesthood, to proclaim the praise of Almighty God, and yet it can seem so unimpressive at times. It can seem so unimpressive. I'm going to read this quote by Dan Bernard. He says, Remember putting your face above the headless frame painted above a headless frame painted to represent a muscle man, a clown, or a bathing beauty. Many of us have had our pictures taken in this way. And the photos are humorous because the head doesn't fit the body. If we, are, if we could picture Christ as the head of our local body of believers, would the world laugh at the misfit? Or would we stand in awe of a human body so closely related to a divine head? Sometimes we get this picture of church, but we get this kind of spiritual picture in our mind of what church should be like from the Bible. We read the Bible, we read about Paul and his journeys and him setting up church in different places, and we forget that church is this real tangible place, that this is church. Sometimes we, we, we don't understand, we, it's hard to relate what we see in the Bible with what we have in real life, but yet this is what God is doing. I want to read us just a small excerpt from the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And the Screwtape Letters is a book about writing about a demon who is trying to distract someone from a walk of Christianity. And so you get this dialogue between kind of like a head demon and kind of his, his lower demon or the person he's, he's working with to try to teach him how to be a good demon. Sounds weird. I know it sounds really weird. It's not weird if you read the book. Um, <laughs> But this is what he writes. This is C.S. Lewis. When he goes inside, this is, this is the person that he's, he's working, this demon's working with. He sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy with, which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks around, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he had hitherto avoided. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter, you're patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sings out of tune or has boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. At this present stage, you see, he has an idea of Christians in his mind, which he supposes to be spiritual, but which, in fact, is largely pictorial. His mind is full of togas and sandals and armor and bare legs, and the mere fact that the other people in church wear modern clothes is real though, of course, in unconscious difficulty to him. Never let it come to the surface. Never let him ask what he expected them to look like. We sometimes get this picture in the Bible of what church should be, what church would look like, what, what the people in the Bible would, would be like. And so we sometimes show up to church thinking that it's going to be all these things, and we just see it's just simple, humble people. Coming together in God's name. 
with babies, with kids crawling all over the floor and spilling Cheerios everywhere. And it, it's just the people of God coming together. And that's what he called us to be. The church may not look like anything special, but this is the body of Christ, and it's rooted in all eternity. I want to read this quote by Gene Edward Veith, and he writes this, In all the ordinariness of a local church and an average Sunday morning worship service, Christ, as with the other vocations, though this time in a spiritually saving way, is hidden. He is actually there wherever two or three are gathered in his name. He is present in his word and in his sacraments and in the hearts of all believers, who, though drab and lowly and nothing special on the outside, make up, nevertheless, a royal priesthood whom Christ has called and in whom he dwells. We may look around and see, man, church is kind of average. There's any high-profile people here. Is there any great and famous people? Just my, some neighbors, some friends, some people I know. But yet this is where God is at work. God has promised to be right here in our midst. As we gather in his name, he is here with us. And this is why we get excited about church. Because there's nothing else in the world like church that God has promised the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. There is no, there's nothing else that God has made that promise to. It's not a business or a country. It's his church. That's who he's made this promise to. And so in our giftings in church, we serve one another. And that's the point of vocation. We, to, how we serve and, and love our neighbors, those sitting around you. So in church, we have people who work in the nursery, we have a finance team, we have a sound team, we have a worship team. All these teams, but these are all people working to serve us as his body, but ultimately the Lord. And so the worship team may sit up here on a Sunday morning and sing songs. They do this to serve us, to serve us so it points us to Christ. They're loving and serving us in this way. And this is the way that we see the tangible reality of what God has done and who God is in our lives. Sometimes we think Christianity is kind of this vague thing, this spiritual thing we've got going on with God, but what does it look like in real life? It looks like his church. That's the reality of who God is, what he's doing. And so today we are going to celebrate baptism. It's one of the ways that we celebrate new life in church. And this for us is exciting because this is the visible demonstration of what God has done in someone's life. It's a testimony to God's saving power in our midst. So we're going to end here. We're going to take communion together before we leave, before we celebrate baptisms. But I want you to consider a couple things. This is God at work. This is what God is doing. God is at work in the church. This is why we get excited about God. And I was reading this week, John Calvin and, and Martin Luther took a very, very strong stand about our participation in church. And they said, you know what? For us to live out the things that we see in Scripture, the one another's, the caring for one another, bring our gifts to one another, all these things the Bible calls us to do, they say, you know what? You cannot do that apart from church. You can't. You can't do it on your own. There's no lone ranger Christians. You can't live these truths of God's Word out apart from a body of believers. 
It's got to be done in the context of church. So I said, if you are living apart from a commitment to a church, you're completely missing the point of all of God's teachings in the New Testament. It's got to be lived out in the church. So that's what makes such a big deal about church is why it's so important to us. We're going to pray. We're going to thank the Lord that he's given us the church. He's given us a, cel- a place where we can celebrate his goodness to us. A place where we can live out these callings that he's put on our lives. So Lord, we thank you. Thank you, God, for the gift of your church. Lord, thank you that you've promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And God, thank you that you've not only called us to faith, but you're calling us to a body. Lord, we pray today that you would help us to see how we fit and how we work into your calling as believers. God, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. You've not left us as orphans. You've not left us as as those without hope, but you've given us your very self and have given us other believers. In Jesus' name, amen.